This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. Hi, I'm Randy Spencer, an author, musician, and Down East Maine fishing guide. You're about to listen to an excerpt from my latest book, Written on Water, Characters and Mysteries from Maine's Back of Beyond. Written on Water is a collection of stories about Grand Lake Stream, Maine, population 132, a place where very old ways of life have survived, and against all odds, the velocity of modern life hasn't yet invaded its shores or its citizens. These are true tales about my experiences guiding people on fishing adventures, as well as many of the lovable and eccentric people who live in the area. In this excerpt from Written on Water, you'll hear a few stories about strange and mysterious unexplained phenomena in the night skies of Grand Lake Stream. In this remote part of Maine, We have a distinct lack of light pollution, just like Area 51 in Nevada. Back in the 1990s, there was astronomical research that showed that Washington County, Maine, was second only to Area 51 in Nevada for UFO sightings in the U.S. The data came with an explanatory note that this conclusion did not necessarily mean that UFOs visit these two places more than anywhere else. Instead, it was the absence of ambient light in these locations that enabled humans to view the heavens more clearly. Light created by cities is sometimes referred to as sky glow, a more flattering term than its alternative name, light pollution. On the other hand, the moon and the stars are discrete light sources. With the absence of heavily populated cities, mega-industrial complexes, and busy freeways, what we have in this remote part of Maine is a distinct lack of light pollution, just like Area 51 in Nevada. Lights in the Night The fall holiday now known as Indigenous People's Day comes while the salmon season on Grand Lake Stream and West Grand Lake is still open. These days, One can see boats trolling for salmon in mid-October, even as temperatures are dipping below freezing. Back in the mid-1990s, salmon season was still open on Grand Lake Stream through October, but closed on the lake. Boat traffic was nil. Camp owners had pulled their docks, boarded up their porches, drained the water line, and bid another season farewell. All except two camp owners, but at the time, I thought my family and I were alone on the 15,000-acre lake. It's a time of year I love to be at camp. The woods roads, carpeted with yellow maple leaves, look like Dorothy's yellow brick road, 
Partridge roam the edges, pecking up gravel to help them digest the mast crop of berries bloating their gullets. Water levels have been drawn down, so it's a good time to work on a beach or breakwater. My wife and I and our 11-year-old son had blown out the kerosene lamps and candles and retired after several late rounds of Uno. It had been a misty evening, and now on my final trip outdoors, I could see that a thick fog was settling over the lake. Had there been another light on in a camp across the lake, I wouldn't have been able to see it. Of the many things that can be responsible for a rude awakening in the night, an elbow to the ribs isn't usually one of them. When I jackknifed up in bed and looked at Shelley, I thought it was morning. The whole camp was bathed in what I presumed was daylight. I glanced at the clock. 1 a.m. I looked back at Shelley in dismay, seeing her shadow on the wall behind her. When I followed her index finger to where she was pointing, I was forced to squint. A giant light, the candle power of which must have been equal to that of a Coast Guard cutter searchlight, was trained on our camp. My skin prickled and beads of sweat formed on my brow. Without thinking, I slithered out of bed and onto the floor, then crawled toward the camp's front door. When I got there, I looked back at Shelley. I could see her just as well as if it had been three o'clock in the afternoon. The light never moved. I cracked the front door just enough to put my ear up to the opening. Nothing. What on earth, I wondered, could be out over the water, producing such a fierce light, and not make a sound? There was no wind, and therefore there were no waves lapping on the beach. Everything remained frozen. Shelley and I, blinded by a light so powerful that it prevented us from seeing anything around or behind it. Shelley had blankets pulled up under her chin. I was on the floor at the front door, wondering what to do. Then... As if making up my mind for me, the light changed its trajectory. It was suddenly trained on the shore to our left. At this, I opened the door more and stuck my head outside. Not a sound. But now that the light was not blinding me, I could see that whatever this was, it seemed to be hovering over the water instead of floating on it. There was no ripple, no wake as the light moved. It moved not just forward, but up and down. The shoreline was thick with 80 to 100 foot spruce, hemlock, and pine trees. The light, partly because of the fog and mist, had every characteristic of a searchlight, casting a bright beam onto shore. It began to travel along that shore, shining from treetops to trunks in rapid-fire motion, so rapid that it had taken in a quarter mile of shoreline in less than a minute. That shoreline comes out to a point in our section of the lake, and when the light reached that point, I stepped out on the deck of our camp. Still, there was no sound in our cove. No disturbance. Out off the point, the light was suddenly joined by a second seemingly identical light. Momentarily, the two of them shone down the cove toward our camp. Even through the fog and mist, the powerful beams lay on the lake surface like broad silver ribbons. Then, just as quickly, both disappeared around the point. I remained on the deck. Out on the lake, the same rapid-fire surveillance or searching or probing continued, 
for I could see the reflections of these movements in the night sky despite the fog, so powerful were these lights. When it was finished, my anxiety subsided slightly, and I went inside to check on Shelley. What was that? she implored. I have no idea, was all I could say. We had nothing to compare this experience to. If it wasn't in the water, it must have been flying, she theorized. But how could it be flying and not make any noise, I countered. We agreed that the only time we felt threatened was when the light was close, shining blindingly into our camp. After that, we felt mostly shock and bewilderment. When we described everything to our son the next morning, he was angry with us for not waking him. This would have been the coolest story ever to tell his friends when we got home. We found Sonny the next morning at his home in town. Shelley said, you do the talking. He listened patiently to the whole story, then thought for a long moment and said simply, yeah. With that, I knew he believed me. Before returning to camp, we needed to pick up some supplies from the Pintry store in town. When we walked in, I saw, to my surprise, Dickie, Sonny's cousin from Massachusetts. It was then that he told me he was staying up at his camp on West Grand Lake. You were up there last night? I hastened to ask. Yep. Did you happen to be up in the middle of the night? Yep. Did you see anything odd? Yep. And I sure as hell didn't know what it was. Lights? Yes. I felt a tremendous sense of relief. Someone else had seen something they couldn't explain, the same thing we'd seen. So what were those lights? Early experimental drones being tested by the military in remote places where they'd be least likely to draw attention? In the mid-1990s, no one was talking about drones yet, but that technology was probably underway. It's the best guess I've come up with to explain it away, and for some people, that's what has to be done. But for others, it might make sense that if there were explorations of our world going on, choosing those places with the least celestial luminance would allow this to go on mostly undetected. The Stud Mill Triangle The Stud Mill Road is an east-west dirt highway connecting Washington County to the Bangor region. Parts of it were built under Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Civilian Conservation Corps, CCC, a work relief program to aid the ailing economy and reduce the high unemployment rate among unmarried young men. Some of these men stood shoulder to shoulder with German soldiers from the prisoner of war camp located at the eastern end of the project. As a vital artery for hauling wood chips, pulp, and tree-length logs from timbering operations to pulp and paper mills, the modern stud mill road dates from the 1970s when its construction cost timberland owners $20,000 per mile. With its many wilderness slag yards and tributaries, it quickly gained renown with UMaine college students and local high schoolers as a famous weekend destination. You travel on the stud mill road at your own risk and at the pleasure of the logging contractors who have business there. Some may scream past you in a cloud of dust, trusting that you will have moved out of the way. Others may slow down, wave, and let you pass. With the advent of the stud mill, 
A night out in the big city began to seem plausible for those who lived at its eastern end, provided you were willing to risk an hour and a half in the woods at night, out of range of any contact. Throughout the 80s and 90s, the then Performing Arts Center, now the Collins Center for the Arts, on the main campus of the University of Maine in Orono, featured big acts with star power pull. When Susie Boggess was appearing there in the mid-90s, my friend Rocky, his wife Tony, and Shelley and I decided it was too good an opportunity to pass up. We knew the hazards. Shale that is turned up after grading can easily puncture tires. If there has been a rain and the road is soft, washboarding occurs. A 57-mile ride over a washboarded surface can loosen the fillings in your teeth and blur your vision. We were lucky. On concert night that June, the road was safely navigable at 50 miles per hour. Our spirits were high as we anticipated being part of an intimate audience in that setting, listening to a voice we all believed could heal the sick or tame the beast within. Susie did not disappoint, singing her heart out to a full house and then hanging out afterward for a meet and greet. We came away with CDs, posters, and other paraphernalia to show everyone when we got home. By the time we reached the entrance to the stud mill in the rural town of Costigan, it was close to midnight. Stars reflected off the Penobscot River when we took our right turn off Route 2 and passed the offices of what was then Champion Paper Company, later purchased by International Paper. When those lights were in our rearview mirrors, I found a comfortable cruising speed around 45 miles per hour, while Rocky hung back about a mile to avoid the dust I was kicking up. At 45 miles per hour, I at least had a fighting chance to get out of the way of a moose who rightly believes he owns the road at night. The first test came about eight miles out. The bull moose that I caught up with turned his head sideways when my headlights hit him. Then he abruptly stopped. So did I. A lone bull moose in close proximity is never to be trusted. Things can swing either way with this moody animal and this one weighed at least two-thirds as much as the Toyota I was driving. It was June, and his antlers were covered in soft velvet. As they continued to grow, they'd eventually slough off the velvet and calcify into weapons he could use against other bulls to mark his ground and show his dominance. At a standoff, I slipped the shifter into reverse, just in case. Vehicles of all types all over Maine have been sent to junkyards after being charged by a bull moose. This one did look like he was considering it, but then must have decided we weren't worth the inconvenience. He started up again at a slow trot, then picked his preferred entrance into the thick spruce growth on the right and disappeared. As I was picking up speed, I saw Rocky's headlights clearing a rise in the distance behind us. Back then... It was all wilderness. Within ten years' time, amid great controversy, a power line would be built alongside the stud mill. But such plans were not yet laid. A first-quarter sliver of moon hung over the tree line in the east. Every constellation in the June sky was visible, including the little guy, Pleiades, out to play with his big friends, Leo, Ursa Minor, and Virgo. To be under a night sky so brilliant and so misleadingly close is to feel accompanied rather than alone. The three red lights that showed up in the middle distance at our ten o'clock changed that feeling of accompaniment into mild curiosity. 
It was a good way away, so it could be anything we reasoned. It was a weekend, after all, and sometimes the Air National Guard out of Bangor ran medevac exercises out here. Those lights could be from a chopper or some other aircraft, but at that distance, we couldn't tell. Then, all of a sudden, we could. Why? Because in the time it took for us to make our medevac guess, the object cut its distance from us to about 400 yards. Shelley said later that I hit the brakes faster than I had for the bull moose. Not only hit the brakes, but killed the engine. It was as if the object had seen us and immediately zoomed in for a closer look. The Toyota 4Runner had manual roll-down windows, and I slowly rolled the driver's side window down. For those lights to have raced that far in so short a time, they had to have a powerful engine. The Sikorsky Black Hawk helicopter was really coming into its own by that time, but I had yet to see one. Many of the maneuvers I'd seen along the stud mill still involved leftover Hueys from the Vietnam era. Maybe this was my chance to get a close look at one of the newer models. If this was a copter, it had killed its engine too, for there was no sound in those woods other than crickets. The lights were still in the direction of 10 o'clock, but they seemed to be still. As we started up again, we realized we were getting closer. It turned out that there was a slag yard at the end of a short road perpendicular to the stud mill. A slag yard is an area of an acre or so left over from a logging operation. Skidders twitch whole trees out of the woods where they've been felled by mechanical harvesters to a yard that has been cleared for this purpose. A cherry picker piles them up for the logging trucks that will haul them to a mill. When the operation is finished, the yard is left with only debris, bark, limbs, tops, and sawdust. When we reached the short road that led to the yard, we saw the object. Three shimmering red lights in the shape of a triangle floated at treetop height above the open slag yard. There was nothing between the lights, neither above nor below them, nor in the center of the triangle they formed. We could see stars right through it. Nor did anything seem to connect the lights. Let's go, Shelley said in a loud whisper. The sight was unnerving, making no noise whatever. There were no cell towers at the time, and there still aren't out there. But this object wasn't attached to the ground the way a tower would be. Once again, it was the absence of any sound that was the most unsettling thing. Neither of us had spoken for several miles when I remembered Rocky. I immediately pulled over and waited. It was long enough before I saw his lights that I assumed he must have stopped too. When he pulled up behind us, I was standing beside my truck. Rocky got out and walked toward me. You see those lights? I asked. Which ones? He replied. It turned out that they had seen not only the ones we'd spotted, but also a similar set earlier that we had missed. Any ideas? I asked. Not a one, he replied. What was once a foreign concept to us is now familiar. Even so, unexplained phenomena that slip suddenly into our immediate presence still produce fear. But so far, none of our encounters have resulted in anything but fear and awe. We are never dismissive when someone else has the courage to tell us what they've seen, no matter how outlandish it might seem.
They get no derision or disparagement from us. We always lend an ear. Thank you for listening to an excerpt from my latest book, Written on Water, Characters and Mysteries from Maine's Back of Beyond. Written and narrated by Randy Spencer. This recording is copyright 2021 by Rivercliff Books and Media. All rights reserved. For more information about Rivercliff Books and Media, please visit rivercliffbooks.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.